Our sermon text is uh, Ephesians 4, verses 31 and into chapter 5. So hear God's word to us from Ephesians, a letter of the Apostle Paul. He writes, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The word of the Lord. Lord, teach us this morning about what it means to walk in love, in particular, what it means to forgive. It is hard for us to forgive one another, (laughs) and we are always tempted towards anger and um, Lord, help us. Help us to forgive us. Help us to forgive and help us to know that we are forgiven in you. In Jesus' name. As people created in the image of God, we are never more like God than when we are forgiving one another. Paul says, again, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Paul grounds the command, um, the command to forgive in the strongest theological terms possible in three different ways, just in these short verses. First, he says, God forgave you, (laughs) so you should forgive one another. Uh, But then he says, be an imitator of God, that to forgive is to be like God. And then he also calls us beloved children, um, and that beloved children are like their father. They're like the family, represent the family, and the family of God is one that forgives and and walks in love. But it's the the one thing that Paul says I want to draw your attention to is what he says when he says, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. This is, um, this is actually unique in the Bible. There's nowhere else in the Bible that it says, tells us to imitate God. Um, it says to imitate Christ, and there's different ways that we become like God, be like holy, but, but this is different, right? He says, be like God. And, and he's thinking here, in particular, of forgiveness. That's what I mean, when we're never more like God when we're forgiving one another. Paul wants us to know that forgiveness isn't simply something Jesus does for us or that he does for the Holy Trinity, but that the forgiveness represents the very heart of God and that we are called to imitate God and therefore we're called to forgive one another. Now, we're we're in this series on the image of God and in particular, what does it mean to be conformed to the image of Christ? And so the question is, what does forgiveness have to do with the image of God? What does forgiveness have to do with the image of God? Forgiveness is the beginning of our full restoration as human beings created in God's image. Forgiveness is the beginning of our restoration into the image of God. Our single greatest need, single greatest need in life, is for God's forgiveness. And Christ's single greatest act and work on our behalf, was to achieve forgiveness through his death and resurrection. Forgiveness rehumanizes us. 
Forgiveness um, is the beginning of the setting right of our relationship with God. You see, if you're created in the image of God, but your, your relationship with God is fundamentally broken, that means you can't be fully, you can't really live out what it means to be an image bearer as God intended it to be. Without forgiveness of sins, the image of God remains broken and disfigured in us. Um, now, Paul's focus here is not on vertical forgiveness, though, by, by which I mean the forgiveness that happens between us and God, but his focus is on horizontal forgiveness. In other words, our forgiving of one another. And he clearly grounds the horizontal forgiveness in the, in the vertical, but he's drawing our attention to a call for us to forgive one another. When we forgive one another, the image of God in us and in the others who have wronged us is restored. And when we refuse to get, forgive, not only does it lead to a, a dehumanizing of other people, but also of ourselves. Now we have, I just gave you a snippet of these verses here. Um, but they come within a section of Paul's letter where he is drawing a contrast between the moral life of the church and the Christian and that of the world that does not know God. And he has all kinds of distinctions here, but in particular, in these verses, he draws a distinction between the church as a community of love and forgiveness and the world as a place of anger and vengeance. Again, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. <clears throat> these, uh, these are, you know, what I call the, the vice, uh, angers rooted, or I'm sorry, vices that are part of the anger family, if you will. Bitterness, wrath, malice, rage, slander. They're all, in a sense, expressions of the the, the vice of anger in our hearts. They, they are signs that, of a world that doesn't know God. Um, and what Paul wants us to do is calls us to an other way of being in the world. In contrast to these, we ought to be, to be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God forgave us, and walking in love. As beloved children, we ought to embody these things in our life. And their presence in our lives is a sign that we know God. That is what Paul is teaching in a nutshell. Now, the way of the world without God is the way of anger and vengeance. And you don't have to look very far um, or read very deep in the newspaper to see anger and rage all around us, right? Our politics is a politics of anger and rage and outrage, right? You know, we're angry about people who don't wear masks, or don't get vaccines, or we're angry at people who insist on getting vaccinated, or we're angry at mass mandates. I mean, I read an article this week in the Journal Sentinel by the, an editorial by the, uh, Alan Borsak who covers um, education in the city, and it was just simply reflecting on how um, angry and um, how much conflict has just consumed the school system in the Milwaukee area over stuff with COVID, but all kinds of things. This is just a little example, but ours is a politics of rage on the right, on the left, everywhere, and we easily get sucked into this sort of anger, and we participate in it. We listen to uh, news feeds or 
um, talk radio and people are ranting and raving, right? We participate in it. The first human city, the city of Cain was founded upon the principles of anger and vengeance. If you remember the story of Cain, right? Cain slayed his brother Abel because he was jealous and out of anger he kills him in a field. And God's judgment on Cain is that he banishes Cain from community. He says, um, for what you did, you will be a restless wanderer on the face of the earth. But Cain refuses to be a restless wanderer. He founds a city. He founds a city, and this city is marked by anger and vengeance. Cain's city, um, and one of his great-grandsons, great-great-great-grandsons named Lamech, actually even turns into song and lyric this culture of vengeance. He says, hear my voice. This is from Genesis 4. Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge was sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Right. That is the, f- the first city founded on anger and rage and vengeance. And that is the earthly city that we participate in, that we live in. We live in this world, and vengeance and rage and anger is an acceptable way of being in the world, in part because we, we feel and we sense that it's justified in, in the sight of the injustice of the world or the wrongs that are done against us. These are legitimate reactions. And in the name of fighting for justice or addressing wrongdoing, we have turned rage and anger into righteousness and to virtue, right? We talk about virtue signaling, and usually virtue signaling online is you showing the world that you're really mad at something bad that has happened, right? Paul says you have to remove these things from our life, that we shouldn't be participating in these things. Now, you might be wondering, okay, but isn't there a place for righteous anger, right? Isn't there a place for righteous anger? I mean, Jesus got angry. He turned over tables. He raised his voice against the Pharisees. Paul himself, in in the earlier part of the chapter that's not here, actually even recognizes the possibility that there can be an anger that doesn't necessarily lead to sin. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. There is a sense in which anger is a natural human reaction when we see wrongdoing when we see injustice, right? When that which is true and good and beautiful and innocent and vulnerable is harmed and hurt, if we don't get angry and we're just like, ah, it's okay, there's something wrong with us. And you see in the Psalms all kinds of expression of anger and outrage at evil in the world and God's enemies. And I think this is important because it teaches us, the Psalms teach us to hate evil and to want its removal. This is an important aspect of of anger, but God does not want us to direct our anger and our rage at one another. He wants us to direct it to Him. And and in the Bible, there's 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 a category of prayer that this is appropriate. We call it lament or lamentation. Lament is something that God gives us Um, And it's the place where we bring our anger and our rage and our hurt and our pain to God. And we can shout at God. There's a lot of shouting at God in the Bible. (laughs) God can handle it. And when we lament, 
what happens is we take all that anger, all that out-of-control anger and desire for bloodthirst, and God is able to, to absorb it and receive it and, and, and even transform that anger into righteous anger. Lament is us surrendering our pain at injustice and our desire for vengeance to God who is the righteous judge. And it teaches us that God is the only one who can really, at the end of the day, bring about justice. And it also reassures us that the Lord is just. He is the righteous judge. And you can be assured of this, friends, that there is no wrong, there is no harm, there is no injustice that the Lord will not hold to account and not make right. The Lord will set all things right. Righteous anger, then. It can be an important motivating passion for us to address injustice and wrong in the world. But the problem is this. We're not Jesus, and we're not righteous. (laughs) Right? Rarely is our expression of anger righteous. Rarely. Like 1% of the time, maybe, in our interpersonal relationships. See, the problem is, is that in anger, we, we misperceive. When we become angry, it, it causes us to misperceive reality. Um, misperceived re- situation. We overreact, and when we overreact, usually we add more injustice to the original injustice, right? And it just sort of spirals. Anger, uncontrolled anger is blinding. That's why Paul is so clear. He's like, in your anger, do not sin, right? And give the devil a foothold. He knows in fact, you've got to deal with it right away. Don't even let the sun go down. Because if it, manif- if it festers in your heart, it turns into malice, <laughs> turns into bitterness. And then that gives Satan a foothold to destroy. To destroy relationships, to destroy community, to destroy yourself. And so Paul is very direct about this. Anger makes us self-righteous. It makes it hard for us to listen to others, especially those who have done us wrong. And we become blinded by our own wrongdoing. We tend to see ourselves as the innocent, right? Those who have been wrong. And here's the thing, too. When we become angry, what we do is we, we disfigure the person or the people that we're mad at. That's the thing about anger, is it disfigures, it dehumanizes those that it's directed at. You know, like, think about what it takes for you to stay mad at a person that's wronged you. When it, it, it requires you to take that offense or whatever it is and always have it in front and center to never let any aspect of that person's humanity come to you besides that incident, right? And so it, it, it's an incredible amount of imagination and emotional energy to remain angry at a person. Um, again, that's what malice is, right? Like malice is to have ill intent towards another person or to put it another way, it is to assume the worst about a person. So they, somebody's made a mistake, they've done you wrong, maybe very legitimately, and so anytime they do anything, you just question them. You question them. You assume that they're going to do the worst thing, and you don't give them any benefit of the doubt. That's what malice is. But that's the opposite of love. Love, set, love hopes all things. It assumes the best, not the worst. But that's what, that's what happens when we do it with air. It turns into malice, right? And it, and it, it dehumanizes. James, the, the book of James says that you know, we use our tongue, we, we bless the Lord, our Father, and with the same tongue we curse people who are made in God's image and likeness. See, the, the reality is that people do do us wrong. They hurt us. They do wrong things to us. And yet, 
even when people do terrible things to us, that doesn't cancel out their humanity. That doesn't all of a sudden remove the image of God for them. It doesn't, make, it doesn't all of a sudden mean that they have no more dignity or no more humanity, right? And this is true of the worst criminals and us, everyday people that just go through our lives often hurting, saying the wrong things. This is why Jesus is so severe and strict in what he teaches about anger. If you remember from the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus understood that murder, the sin of murder is rooted in, in the vice of anger in our hearts. He says this. He says, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell, fires of hell. See, while perhaps we never feel like our anger puts us in danger of murdering another person, think about anger, though. <laughs> Out-of-control anger in our lives um, murders, metaphorically speaking. Anger murders friendships. Anger murders marriages. Anger murders relationships between children and parents. Anger is a destroyer of community. And that's why Jesus is so f severe about checking anger in our lives. Because it will destroy. It will destroy. And it will dehumanize. And not only does it dehumanize those it's directed at, it dehumanizes the person who is holding on to the anger. I mean, being angry feels good. Let's recognize that, right? It feels good. It gives us a form of emotional release when we're really frustrated with life or when we feel wronged. Um, by, it, it's, it's, there's a certain sense of comfort that we draw, especially when we're hurt by being angry. And it is and primarily because we feel vindicated when we're angry. We feel vindicated with ourselves that I am right, I am not wrong, right? And so anger is a way to sort of encase ourselves and protect ourselves. But again, anger is very deceptive. It's very, very deceptive. Um, and the more we indulge it, the more it distorts the way we see other people, not even the people who have offended us, but all people. When we become bitter, it changes us. <clears throat> it makes our hearts bitter. Um, that's what happens when, that's what bitterness, think, think about, so the word bitter, um, you know, when you put a tea bag in water and you let it soak, but if you let it soak too long or steep too long, it be, starts to turn bitter, right? That's what anger is in the heart, right? It's like a tea bag that's just been stewing in warm water and there's no more fragrance there. It's just complete bitter. And that's what we taste like. That's what we, a bitter person is a person that tastes bitter. Like, you know this when you meet a bitter person. Like, ah, you know, this anger is steeping in our heart. And what it does is it dehumanizes us. Again, those of us who hold on to anger, it actually misshapens our humanity. Um, there's a, a great saying by the Buddha on anger that I think puts a very fine point on it. Um, he says, at least I think this is the Buddha, I don't know. It's very true, no matter who said it. Holding on to anger is like grasping a hot coal with the intent of throwing it at someone else but you are the one that gets burned. 
right? The anger is like, it's, it's like taking a hot coal and holding onto a hot coal and thinking that as long as you're holding onto this, you're hurting the other person, right? But the reality is you're just hurting yourself because anger just eats up so much life, so much energy, so much possibility in life. That's why Paul is very, uh, very direct about how harmful it is and that we need to remove it from our lives as Christians. It should have no place. But I think the challenge thing is, well, how do you do this? How do you take anger out of your life? Um, you can only do it through a substitution. You need a substitution. It's not a simply a matter of fact. It's like, okay, I've got anger. Okay, I've got to stop it. i just got to stop it. No, you've got to put something in its place. And the thing that you put in its place, as Paul says, are the virtues, the virtues of forgiveness. Um, tenderness, compassion, kindness, um, these are the forgiveness virtues. Now, uh, Paul in this text in Ephesians, but also in Colossians 3, also talks about forgiveness, and he, he always is listing forgiveness alongside of these other virtues. Uh, in Colossians, he mentions patience and mercy, gentleness and humility. Um, but but I, I think it's important to distinguish here that forgiveness, even though it's listed in all these virtues, forgiveness is not a virtue. Forgiveness is not a virtue. It's an act. It's something you do. A virtue is like a disposition. It's like a character quality in us. But forgiveness is an act, technically speaking. It's something we do when somebody has wronged us. Um, and I think it's just important to reflect, what are we doing when we're forgiving another person? Um, Jesus' parable of the merciful servant is a very helpful one for understanding human forgiveness between one another and how God is involved. And Jesus uses this imagery of, of sin or what we forgive in terms of a debt, right? So when somebody wrongs us, what they do is they incur a debt to us, a moral debt. They've taken something from us. And one way or another, they've, take, they've stolen something from us, some aspect of our dignity as persons. And to, to forgive another person um, is, is your willingness to, to release them from their debt, right? Um, when you're forgiving another person, you're releasing them from what they owe you. Forgiveness is us, in a sense, setting aside our right to collect, uh, whether that be through um, repayment or vengeance or punishment. We're, 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 letting, we're setting it aside. So if, if you think about sin as that which makes us debtors to God or to others, when we wrong them, to be forgiven is to be released from prison, to be set free. And usually when we're forgiving people, they don't know it, they don't experience it, but like well, we're letting them out of the prison of our minds and our own imaginations. To let them, um, to forgive a person is basically to release them from the debt that they've incurred against us. Um, but forgiving a person from the heart, as Jesus says, is, is difficult. It's not just like a switch, a light switch that you can flip on and off. It actually requires a great deal of moral uh, effort and energy to do it. Um, and that's why Paul, I think, always is situating forgiveness in the context of these virtues. And I call these virtues the forgiveness virtues. You think about it as you need patience and humility and tenderness and kindness in order to actually forgive a person. You need, you need those virtues. Um, I, oh, about a year ago, I hurt my back surfing. 
Um, I had a bulge disc. It wasn't super bad, but I just, I, I mean, it was terrible. And I went to my regular chiropractor, and he's trying to do adjustments. Nothing just helped at all. I got a new chiropractor, and then I went to see him. And he never even touched me the first time. I, he's just like, he wanted to see how I could move, what movements could I do and what I could not do. And what he did is he started to introduce me to different exercises and stretches that would sort of target that area of my disc that, and help it repair itself. And so I went to him for about a month. And most of the time, it was just doing exercises and him teaching me new exercises. And every, every time I would go and I was a little bit better, I would learn another exercise that actually worked more muscles that I couldn't move like two or three weeks ago. Um, and by the end of it, though, I was doing really complex movements with my back and my hips and things like that, and things that now I know so I can keep that weak disc in place. And I think forgiveness is very much like that. Forgiveness is like, it's, it's a very difficult movement of the soul, and when we're injured, when we're really injured, it's like a bulge disc in the soul. And then, and then the, the command to forgive comes, and you're just like, I can't do that. I cannot move my soul in that way. And that's where I think it's helpful to think about these virtues, where we, we, you exercise right? patience, patience, gentleness, humility. And, and, and we, we train ourselves in these ways, and they, they, they help us, right? They help us to go to that place of forgiving one another, to give us the moral strength for that. See, in the world, the world views forgiveness as optional. The world views the forgiveness as morally optional. It's really cool if you forgive others. And sometimes we even celebrate that, right? But um, forgiveness is not something that can be required of people. In fact, it's immoral at a certain point to insist that someone forgive another person. But I, I want to just remind you how out of step Jesus is <laughs> with the world. Because Jesus, he doesn't just exhort forgiveness. He's like, no, you should really forgive. You should really forgive. He demands it. He commands it. And he says, if you don't forgive, you are endangering your own life, your own relationship with God. Paul is the same way. When we refuse to forgive, it damages our relationship with God and with one another. And, and, the, and the reason that Jesus gives, and this is the, the heart of the message of the parable, is that you will never be required to forgive another person more than what God has forgiven you. You will, you will never, friends, you will never be required to forgive another person more than what God has already forgiven you. This is, this is the heart of the gospel. But I know, again, this is, a, this is a very short message on forgiveness. As I prepared for this, I realized I need to do a whole series on forgiveness because it's a very complicated and difficult thing. I just want to make a couple qualifications before I, I close. Forgiveness is not an excuse for bad behavior. It's not an excuse for bad behavior. Forgiveness is, doesn't mean we don't hold people accountable for doing wrong. And forgiveness is not just like that switch where you can turn on and off and you say, like, do it. Where you can expect it to others or of, even of yourself. It's a process. Forgiveness is a process. It takes time. But finally, I, too, forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. They're not the same thing. See, it's possible to forgive a person from the heart, truly, but not to be reconciled with them. 
There are times in life when the harm that's done is so great and so severe that it's not possible to have a relationship. That's the, rea that's the reality of the world. Or it's not safe. One of the reasons why is because you have to have a common shared narrative in order to, for there to be reconciliation. And often in life, we never can achieve that common narrative. And so it's possible to forgive, but reconciliation is another matter. Which means that forgiveness, again, is required of us, but that doesn't always mean and lead to full restoration. Forgiveness is difficult, but offering forgiveness and receiving it restores our humanity. It restores our humanity. Anger, rage, bitterness, malice, slander destroys not only those around us, it destroys us, but kindness and tenderness and love and forgiveness rehumanizes. It makes us look like God, <laughs> to be like God, and the way he is towards us. And properly done, forgiveness is not a compromise of justice. It is not an indulging of bad behavior. But when it's done right, when it's done right, it refuses to let our lives and those who have wronged us to be defined ultimately by the wrongs and mistakes we've made. Forgiveness says that our lives don't ultimately have to be defined by the worst thing we ever did. I, I love the, the story of Brian Stevenson, who is the, the civil rights lawyer um, who defends young men on death row. There's a movie made about his life, Just Mercy. And one of the things he said, and I heard in a talk one time of his, he's talking to these, these, these young men who have murdered people and are in life forever. Their lives are over, right? And he says, you are more than the worst thing you ever did. You are more than the worst thing you ever did. See, that cannot be true unless human beings are created in the image of God and all human beings, even the worst, have dignity even when they do wrong things, terrible things. And it can't be true unless God's forgiveness is real. Friends, you are never more like God than when you forgive one another. The character of God is never more evident and real in our lives and in our community than when we offer forgiveness to one another. And it is difficult and requires the exercise of those, those virtues in our lives in order to do it. But the most important thing is this, I think. And this is what Paul reminds us of. The more Jesus' own, his death and his resurrection, his, his sacrificial death becomes precious to us, the more we grapple with how much we've been forgiven, the easier it is to forgive others. The more, in Paul's word, fragrant it becomes. He uses this language, he says, um, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus' death on the cross is like a fragrant offering, and it needs to be so in our own lives. And when we forgive one another, the pleasing aroma of God's forgiveness fills the air and fills our lives. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the great forgiveness that we have received in Christ. We do pray that his forgiveness would be fragrant and precious to us. And Lord, that you would give us the, the inner resources that we need in order to forgive one another and to love as you loved us. 
We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.